Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. continue our study in Hebrews, and uh, the section specifically will be chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 4, uh, so feel free to follow along on the screen. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thank you, Peter. Please be seated. Thank you so much for taking time out of your week and joining us as a family of families. I believe that in the reading of God's Word and the gathering of His people, that's the primary means through which God strengthens us as we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you so much for joining us. This morning we're continuing our study of Hebrews. We're looking at chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 4. It's a unit, but the units are all connected within the book proper. This particular section does begin with chapter 1, verse 1, but chapters one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is so theologically dense, we took a separate study just to unpack what was being stated in that text. The primary idea that we will see in our passage is that Jesus Christ is better than the Old Testament best. There is a single unified story, and the center of that story is Jesus Christ. All the prophets, all the messengers of God brought that to us, But what they prepared us for and pointed us to is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is indeed God's firstborn son. So the primary idea in the opening of Hebrews is to set Jesus as God's final and superior revelation from him. He is the culmination of all the prophets and angels prepared us for and pointed us to. 
And as we began seeing in chapter 2, 1 through 4, if we refuse him, if we refuse to hear him, there is no escape from future damnation. And chapters 1 and 2 form for us an introduction to the entire book. Within these two chapters, they lay forth the divinity of Christ in chapter 1 and then the humanity of Christ in chapter 2, which both are necessary for us in order to be saved from God's wrath, the destruction of death, and being adopted into the family of God. If you've had opportunity to join us in our study of church history, we looked at several heresies this morning that existed in the first and second century church. And it's interesting how the book of Hebrews either directly or indirectly addresses those heresies. And it's encouraging to hear that. In the book of Hebrews, when you look at the word angel, there's a repetition and density of that word in chapters 1 and 2. After chapters 1 and 2, there's very little said concerning angels. But I'd like to just comment on that idea initially, why this focus on angels. Well, angels are prominent in the narrative of the Old Testament text. You don't have to look far to be confronted by the presence of angels from Abraham in Genesis 18. We know of Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6. When Peter was imprisoned, he was led out of prison by an angel in Acts chapter 5, verse 19. Zechariah in the temple received the word of God concerning his wife Elizabeth and the impending birth of John the Baptist from an angel in Luke chapter 1. The Virgin Mary was told by the angel Gabriel of her pregnancy in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. The shepherds heard the proclamation of a host of angels in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. So we know that angels are very extensive as messengers from God to man. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 2, encourages us to entertain strangers, for in so doing we could be entertaining angels unaware, which is incredibly sobering. So if you're an angel and you're here visiting with us, welcome. Paul understood the fascination that we have with the spirit world and thus cautions us in our relationship to an unbiblical focus on angels in Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, when he writes, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. And during this period of time, which is called the Second Temple period, from after Malachi and before the end of the first century, many Jews had a superstitious or idolatrous respect for angels because they had received the law and other tidings of the divine will by their ministry. They looked upon them as mediators between God and men. They thought the prophets were super spiritual and they didn't need this mediation, but we, the normal, needed mediation before God and thus he gave us angels and we placed angels between God and ourselves, which was unfortunate. And some people during this period of time went so far as to pay them a kind of religious homage or worship. And it, this false teaching colored the minds of the audience, and whether directly or indirectly, it's being addressed in the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews is showing us that Jesus Christ is better than the message that came through prophets and angels. Thus, regardless of how majestic and mighty angels are, and indeed they are, when God came to us in Son chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, everything else preceding him was eclipsed by the radiance of his glory because he is the express image of the invisible God. Now, the means that God uses to convince us of this is the usage of the Old Testament, and which is uh, interesting when you think of the heresies in the first century church. Many would reject or deny uh, the Old Testament text, and yet it's the Old Testament text that the author of Hebrews appeals to to prove 
that Jesus is God's final revelation to show how Jesus Christ is better than the revelation received through the prophets and the angels. And there are four reasons which we will consider in chapters 1 and then chapter 2, the conclusion to it as to why the revelation that's coming through the Son is better, it's fuller, it's more final than that that came through the prophets and the angels. But before continuing, let us pray. Our Father, this morning, the prayer we pray is rather simple. From Hebrews 1, we must see an exalted Christ. That is what will change us forever. We cannot leave the same way we came if we see the exalted Christ. And in the study of this text, may we hear him, may we worship him, may we serve him, and may we believe him. Grant us insight and faith. Remove from us all obstacles to believing. Cause us to simply say yes to Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. There are four lines of evidence from the Old Testament that shows how Jesus is superior to the angels, and thus he is to be heard, he is to be worshipped, he is to be served, and he is to be believed. And that will be our big takeaway. This is who Jesus is. What will be our response to him? Well, the first thing that we see inside of our passage is that Jesus, unlike angels, is God's firstborn son. Look at verses 4 and 5. He's having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says. The name that Jesus has that is different than that of the angels is not simply the name Jesus, but that of son. Unlike angels, Jesus is God's firstborn son. And as the firstborn son, as we've seen earlier in verses 2 and 4, and then chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, is that as the firstborn, he is the heir of all things. And this is what the book of Hebrews stresses. The author references three Old Testament passages inside of this idea. And because of Hebrew parallelism, there is a redundancy and intertwining of thought. I'm going to unpack it a little bit, but it's really repetitive. The, the big takeaway is that Jesus Christ, unlike angels, is identified as son, thus the heir of all things, and he is the firstborn. We need to see that. He has preeminence, and he is worthy of worship and service. And these three thoughts can be noted within the passage itself. The son is to be heard, and we'll see this by the way they use Psalm 2. And that's why we had all these passages read earlier, because they are embedded inside the text. In verse 5, our author cites Psalm 2, verse 7. If you were to go back and read Psalm 1 and 2 together, you would see how they are running in parallel. They build off of each other. And Psalm 1 marks the two paths, and many of us are familiar with Psalm 1. The one of the unbelieving wicked in the path of the believing righteous. There's only two ways. You either believe in God or you don't. You either accept Jesus or you don't. Psalm 2 mocks the assaults of the unbelieving wicked. And the occurrence of this psalm elsewhere highlights the son as the anointed king. And we'll see that in our study. What is interesting about Psalm 2, and you might have picked it up and I'll point it out right now, is how the psalm ends. So it identifies 
this individual as the son. He's the king. And we know the psalms that he cites are messianic psalms. They speak bigger than just King David. But notice verse uh, stanza 2 in Psalm 2 and listen to what it says. And I want you to hear it in light of our passage. It says in verse 2 of Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember the intent of Hebrews 1. Jesus Christ is the fullest and final revelation from God. If the message coming through the prophets and if the message coming through the angels bore weight, how much more will be the weight from the message borne by Christ? If you reject him, what hope do you have? And Psalm 2 ends with that idea. If you reject the Son... There is no hope for you. And if you track Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, 4, which we've just had read, we read the same warning as Psalm 2 in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. How shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? If you reject Jesus, there is no hope. Are you with me on that? Because what does our world need the most? Jesus. They have to hear the gospel. They have to accept the gospel. And we see that in its usage of Psalm 2. He is thus to be heard. And then we see this emphasis on his name. And when you think of the name, you often refer to Philippians 2. And I'm going to read the passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 10, just so we can hear it in context. But it says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. That's how he emptied himself. He took on human nature. We're going to see that in Hebrews 2. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he has a name that is more excellent than that of angels, and the name is Son. We see in Philippians chapter 2 that name is assigned to, uh, that significance is assigned to the name of Jesus. Now, there is nothing magical about the word or letters or name Jesus. We were talking about this at the men's Bible study, and an individual said he worked with a number of people who are named Jesus. Or Jesus. So what is significant about this? And what I equally find interesting is that sometimes we assign some mystical significance to the name of Jesus that if we simply recite the name, we are casting some kind of spiritual blessing on someone. But in fact, there are multiple persons with that name in the Bible. During the period that we call Second Temple Judaism, the most common male names in Judea or post-kingdom of Israel were Simeon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judah, John, and Jesus. Jesus was number six. It's always interesting. I, I remember the name Jesus thinking that is so special until uh, I encountered the Hispanic world and many of their children are named Jesus, Jesus. 
Yet it's when we couple that name with the person and work behind it, we have the hinge on which all of history swings. And it isn't simply the name Jesus, but that of son. Of all the Jesus and Jesuses that have been named, only one is the son of God. And that's what this text tells us. And when that son speaks, we are to listen. He is to be heard. And we see that in Psalm 2. The second thing we see is that this son is not only to be heard, but he's to be worshipped. In verse 6, you have a quoting of Deuteronomy 32.43 in Psalm 97.7. As with the firstborn, you have a principle of error and the peculiar privileges So the Lord Jesus Christ sustains a similar rank in the universe of which God is the head and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It says in verse 5, the latter part, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. The Son is not only to be heard, but he is to be worshipped. Now, Jesus Christ is the only and one Son of God. And there's this familial structure that alludes to the Trinity in its economy. And sometimes people look at this and say, well, Jesus is a son. He's a created being. He's, he's less than the Father. And theology has wrestled with this forever. And the idea is that you have two views of the Trinity, the Trinity being one person, uh, one God, three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We use that language. We are Trinitarian. And yet we have this description where you have a father and a son. What is all that? Well, it speaks to the idea that the Father begets or generates the Son and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. And hopefully that didn't make too much sense to you. It's technical language, but what it speaks to is this idea that within the Trinity there is an economy. There is a Father, there is a Son, there is a Holy Spirit. And it speaks of Jesus listening to his Father, obeying his Father. Well, that's how the Trinity within itself functions. But there's another aspect of the Trinity within the Scripture... That's called the ontos or ontology of God. And we recognize that both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equally the same. Yet in their function, they are different. In their function, you speak of economy or administration. When you speak of the oneness of God, you're speaking of their ontos or being. The Nicene Creed in the early church spoke of it in this way. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That's a beautiful statement. And you can pick up my notes and read it again. But that is a beautiful statement. This is why earlier in verse 3, Jesus is described as the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint or image of the Father. It is the eternal fatherhood of God that presupposes the eternal sonship of the Son. They've always existed in this way. So not only is the Son to be heard, he is God's firstborn. Not only is he to be worshipped, and we see that when it says, let all God's angels worship him. But then verse 7, and it contrasts, the contrast is between verses 7 and 8. But verse 7 says, of the angels, he says, remember there's a, Comparison taking place between angels and Jesus. Jesus is firstborn. Jesus is son. He is to be heard from Psalm 2. He is to be worshipped from verse 6. And then verse 7, he is to be served. It says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. We'll expand that in just a moment. 
but the Son is to be served. We read Psalm 110, but here we have Psalm 104. It says, and it's quoting verse 4 of Psalm 104. And I'm just going to read you the first uh, three stanzas or verses in Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He establishes the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. But it speaks of God as creator. It speaks of God as eternal, as unchanging. And then it speaks of angels as his messengers in flaming fire, his ministers. And the core premise of Psalm 104 is God as creator has authority over creation. And as such, creation serves him. The preeminence of Jesus grants him authority over what he creates. The revelation coming from him finishes what the Old Testament began. Thus, verses 6 and 7 portray angels as servant beings. They are serving him. He is their creator. And these creatures worship God and serve God. In contrast, according to verses 8 through 14, Jesus is given ultimate authority. And as a nature which is unchangeable and eternal, he is not worshiping, but he is to be worshipped. And that's what Hebrews chapter 1 wants us to know. So I've unpacked the first part, God's firstborn son. But now let's look at the second, third, and fourth evidences. Secondly, unlike angels, Jesus is God's anointed king. Notice the verses 8 and 9. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In this passage, he is quoting Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And in this verse, we read of worship and thrones. We read of scepters and kingdoms. And Jesus is God, and as such, he creates and has by right of position and activity the power to rule and to reign. That's what we have here. Psalm 45 celebrates the beauty of God's king. There's graphic language being used in Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. If you read Psalm 45 and you look at Hebrews chapter 1, you see that, quote, and it describes his appearance as beautiful and his rule as absolute. He is God's anointed king. This is not said of anyone other than Jesus. There is no king or power or authority beside him or above him. There is nothing outside of God calling him out or holding him accountable. God only has self-imposed limits in the exercising of his authority over that which he creates and owns. Thus, God may do what he wants with what is his, and when he does it, he is always right. That's how extensive and expansive his authority is. And it identifies him as righteous and just, and all that he does is righteous and just. The third proof that Jesus Christ is to be heard is that not only is he God's firstborn son, not only is he God's anointed king, but he's God's non-created creator. It says in verses 10 through 12, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. When you look at God and Jesus creating all things, and you read the book of Hebrews, and I would encourage you to stay in Hebrews. Keep reading Hebrews. Even if you don't make it through in a week, just keep reading it. Saturate yourself with the language and the topic and theme flow inside of the book. But you'll see that often the author of Hebrews cites God and Jesus and their relationship to creation. They created creation. They sustain creation. And unlike creation, they are outside of it. They are eternal. And Psalm 102, which he quotes, begins with the heart cry of a troubled soul. If you read Psalm 102, you realize that the person writing it is in turmoil, but it ends with the celebration of God as the eternal creator, the non-creating creator. And as such, the brokenhearted shall not perish, but will endure. Psalm 102, verse 28 says, the children of your servants will continue. Despite the fact that the writer of the psalm is in turmoil, a place of trouble, it ends by saying, but because you are the creator, I myself will be sustained. And when you think of that in light of what we'll read in Hebrews, that's encouraging. The children of your servants will continue. Their descendants will be established before you. Jesus is God's firstborn son, anointed king and eternal creator, guarantees the outcome and end of all who believe. This becomes important as we read Hebrews. Now, there is one other evidence offered by the author proving the preeminence or fullness or finality of Christ's revelation over all the prophets and angels. And we see that in verses 13 and 14. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Here we have the quoting of Psalm 110. We read it already, but the language is common in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then in verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The author of Hebrews cites Psalm 110, to show how God, the Son, the firstborn, is a conquering monarch. He rules, and he rules over that which he creates, and all of creation is to worship him. All of creation is to hear him. All of creation is to serve him. Everything about this psalm and the use of it here speaks of Jesus as God's conquering monarch. Jesus rules over all things created. Our Bible tells us, we see this in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, that a day is coming when all the enemies of God shall be placed at his feet and they will function for him like an ottoman, like a footstool. The intent of the passage celebrates the son's preeminence. But it's his preeminence, his kingship, his right to rule that guarantees his people inheriting salvation. It's to encourage us. This is the God we believe. This is the God we have faith in. And the outcome of our faith isn't based on our ability to hold fast, but on his ability to hold. It's based on who he is, not who we are. So when you look at Hebrews chapter 1, 
it gives us this incredible description of Jesus in verses 1 through 4. And then beginning in verses 5 till the end of the chapter, it says not only is the revelation fuller and final coming from Jesus and the prophets, but it's greater than the angels. And when it talks about the angels, it sets Jesus Christ out as God's firstborn. It sets him out as God's anointed, God's non-created creator, God's conquering monarch. It sets him out as that. And if everything we have said is true, then what comes from him carries greater weight than what came through the prophets and the angels. And if we listen to them, we must now listen to him. And if we rejected the message that came through them and it bore weight, how much greater will be the weight if we reject what comes through Jesus? And thus in chapter 2, 1 through 4, you have God's inescapable conclusion. When you look at chapter 2, it begins with the word therefore. And the therefore is in conclusion, in summary. Based on what we have just seen in chapter 1, here's the conclusion. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, if you did not heed it, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we choose not to hear Jesus, how much greater will be the consequences? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. But if everything we have said up to this point is true, then we need to pay attention to what's being stated. Pay close attention. Uh, what's interesting, and, and we won't go into detail here, we will as we move through Hebrews, but this is what is called the first of the five warning passages. And I believe the warning passages are progressive in that they become weightier as we move through the book. The initial intent is to simply say, you need to listen to Jesus. And right now is not the time to turn back. There's two things in chapter 2, 1 through 4. Chapter 2, 1 through 4, you have the exhortation, which is pay attention, and then the explanation as to why you should. This pattern of instruction followed by caution is prevalent in the Hebrews. So as we read Hebrews, we'll keep coming across these warning passages. And the intent of the warning passage is believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, keep believing in Jesus. Hold fast to that confidence. As with any congregation, the recipients of this letter or hearers of this sermon would include both believers and unbelievers. If you are a believer, the exhortation in the text is keep believing in Jesus. Don't turn back. Don't give up. Don't quit. If you don't know Jesus, believe in Jesus. The point is always Jesus. The warning is the same for both. Look to Jesus. But the implication is different. For the believer, it is an encouragement to continue to stand firm in their faith in Christ. Don't quit. Don't quit. For the unbeliever, it is an exhortation to look for, to Christ for their salvation. And again, context matters, and I'll bring that up in just a moment. The exhortation is, pay attention. All who hear and see the Son must obey what he has said and done. His words and acts are binding, and to transgress or disregard him is to remain in a state of damnation or condemnation. But he speaks to the people who are confessing Christ. Thus the caution and encouragement. 
to keep on believing in Jesus. Don't drift. Stay focused on Jesus. So what would I tell you to do today? Keep believing in Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, what am I telling you and inviting you to do? Believe in Jesus. And then you have the reason why in verses 2 through 4. Verse 3 uses the word confirmed. How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to. It uh, was attested to us by those who heard. Attested. It occurs again in Hebrews 13, 9 for established. The idea that the evidence that I'm giving you has been verified. It's been established. Verse 4 uses the word witness. That word witness is a compound word. It has two prefixes and then the word proper. It means to testify further with together. All of these things verify that what I have said is true. That's what verse 4 does for us. And the question then posed is rather simple. If you reject the message that has come to us through Jesus, then what hope do you have of escaping eternal judgment? And the answer that Hebrews offers us is simple. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. Now, in a world that's incredibly pluralistic, that sounds very arrogant. And yet, that's what this text is telling us. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope. What does this passage tell us? Now, the author of Hebrews speaks to a persecuted people who are being tempted to return to Judaism. They are Jews persecuting Jews. The, the Judaizing Jews versus the Messianic Jews. And the Judaizing Jews are persecuting the Messianic Jews and they're calling them back to Judaism to avoid the persecution and there's this temptation. Thus the answer to that persecution isn't try hard to do better but believe in Jesus. When we look at Hebrews chapter 1 verses 5 to the end of the chapter, we see that Jesus is God's firstborn son. Jesus is God's anointed king. He's the non-created creator. He is the con con conquering monarch, and he is the inescapable conclusion. Because this is true, and, and folks, all of us have just read this text. This text is saying something that is similar to what I just said. I've put it in a way that perhaps will help us in our understanding, but Jesus is God's firstborn son. No angel can make that claim. Jesus is God's anointed king. Jesus is God's non-created creator. Jesus is God's conquering monarch before whom all shall bow. And Jesus is God's inescapable conclusion. If you reject him, you have no hope. Because of this, the son is to be heard. He is to be worshipped. He is to be served. And he is to be believed. Do we... Hear him. Are we worshiping him? Are we serving him? And do we believe him? The challenge we have is, who are we hearing if not him? Who are we worshiping if not him? Who are we serving if not him? And who are we believing if not him? See, God's son is our savior. And apart from him, we have no hope. And from last week, will we listen to him? Will we talk of him? And will we bow before him? The conclusion is rather simple. 
Jesus Christ is God's fullest and final revelation of himself to us. And now it is for us to hear him, to worship him, to serve him, and to believe him. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, it is easy for us to get lost in words, to hear what we have heard and simply shut it down. And yet we are leaning on the idea that the word of God will be taken by the spirit of God and do a sure work in the people of God. The conclusion that we come to is inescapable. Jesus Christ is everything that has been said of him in Hebrews 1. And because of that, we have to hear him. Because of that, we have to worship him. Because of that, we have to serve him. We have to believe him. Otherwise, we have no hope. If not him, then what? If not him, then whom? The answer is always Jesus. The Father, we pray the prayer. Now we ask again, remove from us blind eyes, remove from us deaf ears and dead hearts and mute voices. Impress upon us the exalted Christ. And may we hear him. May we worship him. May we serve him. And may we believe in him. Grant us insight and faith. May we continue to believe him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.